various animals pop up now and again in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of sheep and goats and cattle. You may have noticed that, given the agricultural nature of Israel and their animal sacrifice in their religious system. It's to be expected. And other animals are used for transport, like horses and camels. However, some animal references are much more dramatic. For instance, a serpent speaks, and a big fish swallows a prophet. A lion is defeated by the young David with just a sling and a stone. And one of my favourites, two bears maul 42 teenagers. Do you know that story? The prophet Elijah, who we are told is bald, is walking down the road. These 42 teenagers start mocking him and calling him baldy. And then two bears start chasing the teenagers around. I just love that story. Second Kings chapter 8. It's one of those stories you read and think, is this even allowed to be in the Bible? <laughs> but anyway, animals pop up all over the place. And out of all the animals mentioned in the Bible, donkeys are certainly intriguing. Not only are they beasts of burden, but they pop up in quite some unusual places. Most famously, there's Balaam's talking donkey. Do you remember the story? Balaam's offered a truckload of money by the enemy of Israel to curse that nation. On his journey, an angel of death that is invisible to Balaam but not to the donkey tries three times to kill Balaam. The donkey each time tries to rescue his master, the prophet. First of all, the donkey runs off the road into a field and what does he receive for saving his master? A beating and curses. A little later on, the angel of death is in the way through a narrow pass and the donkey scrapes and crushes the prophet as he squeezes past the wall. Another beating. And then finally, the angel of death stands in front of the donkey and the donkey just sits down and won't budge. And all the time, Balaam is cursing and beating the donkey until God enables the donkey to speak and put Balaam straight. A wise donkey humbles a proud prophet. And then there's Samson, who's caught by surprise in a field by Philistines that are out for revenge. He's weaponless. So what does Samson grab? The jawbone of a donkey. And then a thousand Philistines fall. And yet out of all the donkey references, and there are more, our focus this morning is on Jesus riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. It is by far the most significant donkey story in the Bible. We're going to be in Mark's Gospel, and we're a little out of sequence in our preaching series. We're only about to start chapter 4 in our series, and we're up to chapter 11 here. But as we do, we remember that all the time Mark is asking us, challenging us with this question, who is Jesus? So whenever you're reading a story about Jesus, think in the back of your mind, what is Mark trying to tell us about who Jesus is? And so this morning, this Palm Sunday, we're going to focus on three questions. Why a donkey? Why the strange provision of a donkey? And then what does this tell us about Jesus? So first, why did Jesus come riding on a donkey? And we pick this up in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent out two of his disciples, saying to them, 
Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them, the Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. So Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. Now most visitors to the city at this time were pilgrims, gathering to celebrate Passover. There were many people on the road. But Jesus had something else, much bigger but much grimmer in mind. You see, at the start of their journey, back in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 33, he upsets his disciples with these words. He says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And at these words, his disciples were astonished, and those following became deeply afraid. And yet he continued on his journey. And as he approached the city, Jesus stops to do something most unusual. He commandeers a donkey. Now, why would he do this? It's clear up to now, Jesus' transport of choice has been walking. So why choose a donkey when every other time that he's come to Jerusalem, he's walked? Why the fuss? Well, that's where some background will help. You see, for decades, Israel has been under Roman rule, and it's tough. Taxes are set by the Romans, and they're heavy. Justice is meted out by the Romans, and it could be cruel. Resources were commandeered at a whim, and all the Israelites, they struggled to worship Yahweh in the way that they wanted to. It was always an uphill battle. And so they longed for the coming of their Messiah. They knew the prophecies foretelling the coming of God's anointed. And when he did come, this Messiah would boot the Romans out and set up a kingdom as wonderful and prosperous as that of King Solomon. This is what God's people were keenly watching for. As a starving person longs for food, or as a desert parched land longs for the rainfall, so God's people longed for their Messiah. And one of the prophecies the people watched and waited for was the one in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. And Jesus knew this prophecy, just like the rest of the people knew this prophecy. But Jesus also knew he was God's anointed, the Christ, the Messiah. So he sets about making this prophecy come true. And this is the why of Jesus riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday. This is why he breaks his common practice of walking to ride on a foal, the colt, unbroken, of a doggy. It's about fulfilling the prophecy, telling of a true and better king, the Messiah who would come humbly riding such a donkey. No wonder the crowds cried, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They recognised the prophecy and they were hoping Jesus was the one. And this brings us to why the strange provision of a donkey. We can understand why Jesus rode a donkey, but why the peculiar circumstances of getting it. You see, at first glance, it seems that Jesus is asking his disciples to steal the donkey. 
Is that how you take it when you read that section? I've always wondered when I've come to here and thought, oh, it kind of sounds like Jesus is asking his disciple just to go ahead and take a donkey that doesn't belong to them. And that's exactly how the onlookers saw it. Mark 11, 4 and 5. The two disciples went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? It's like the locals are standing around and saying to themselves, we know the owner of the donkey, but we don't know you. Why are you taking it? To put it in a modern day example, imagine you're at New World Supermarket. You've chatted to a friend in the supermarket and now you're outside loading your groceries into your car, which happens to be right next to your friend's car. And you know your friend is still in the shop when two men come and open the door and get in. So what do you think? You say, what's happening here? I know my friend's still shopping. Then out loud, if we're brave enough, we might say, what are you two up to? That's what's happening here. And can you imagine the two disciples feeling very nervous? Wondering exactly what sort of trouble Jesus has got them into. Maybe they're going to be arrested. Maybe these people will beat them up, throw them out of town. However, they remember the words of Jesus in verse 6. They answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. And what were these words? The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. It's all rather strange, isn't it? But again, to... Help us understand what's happening here. We need to go into the background and understand the practice of commandeering, which was common in these days. Commandeering is the right to seize private property for military or public use. And the Romans were very good at it. The Romans who were occupying Israel could take people's stuff, and that was that. You couldn't argue, you couldn't take them to court, you had no recourse. Not only that, there were certain things the Romans could ask you to do. So a Roman soldier could grab any Israelite and tap them on the shoulder and say, I want you to carry my stuff. I want you to carry my kit, my pack, my spear, my sword. And you just have to drop everything and you have to go with that Roman soldier. Now there was a stipulation that you could only go a mile, a Roman mile. And as an aside, we may think back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you must go the second mile. What that means is that if a Roman soldier tapped you on the shoulder and said, you must carry my kit, not only were you to take it the first mile, but you were then to turn to that soldier and say, I would like to take it a second mile. That's where that expression, which we use so commonly, comes from, going the second mile. But that was the context that that Jesus and the disciples found them in themselves. And not only that, even the Israelite kings, not just Caesar, but even the kings followed this practice in times past. In the time of Judges, Israel demanded a king. Do you remember that way back in 1 Samuel? Now Samuel is the last judge and the people say, we want to be like other nations. We want a king. And Samuel replied, you really don't want a king. God is your king. He is much better than any person could be. But they insisted So God relents, and we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. Samuel said to them, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your wine and give it to his official attendants, your men servants and maid servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own. You see, the king had the right to commandeer to take your stuff. The Romans were doing it on behalf of Caesar, and they were very good at it. Previously, Israelite kings were good at it. So what Jesus is doing here, commandeering this donkey, he is behaving like a king. Which, of course, brings us to our final question. What does this riding a donkey have to tell us about who Jesus is? Well, all of this is to show us what the people are about to put into words. The people cry out, Hosanna to the king. The riding and the commandeering of the donkey is Mark's way of showing us that Jesus is the true and the better king. He is the Messiah. Why? Because he can commandeer a donkey just like the king can. And because he chooses to ride this donkey into Jerusalem, exactly like Zechariah 9.9 tells us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's exactly what the crowds do, don't they? They rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's talking to the people that live in Jerusalem. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. And so they sing and they shout and they wave palm fronds. They put their clothes and, and for Jesus to walk across with the donkey and they shout his praises just like the fulfillment of the prophecy. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem as Zechariah foretold, as the true and the better king. But not only this, this This prophecy, this verse in Zechariah tells us four things about this king who chooses to ride a donkey. Four things. The first thing it tells us about Jesus is that he is a righteous king. Righteous. He is right with God and he is right with people. Now righteous is one of those theological words that pop up now and again, don't they? A simple definition is someone who is righteous is right with God and right with people. And Jesus was like that, like as in no other person before him. He was a man of integrity and character and worthy of the high status. King of kings, Lord of lords, high king of heaven. And so Peter later wrote in a letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And remember, Peter was there witnessing all this, but later he writes this. For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Jesus is the righteous king. And because he died for us, he was able to bring us to God, which leads us to our second phrase in Zechariah 9.9. Jesus is a king who offers salvation. For in just a few short days after the heights of Palm Sunday, he would know the depths of Good Friday. His death will save all those who believe in him from the grip of sin and death. And again, we turn to Peter and what he says about Christ having salvation. Fast forward a few months, 
And Peter has been preaching Jesus and he's hauled up before the Sanhedrin, the same group of people that put Jesus to death. And so he's asked to defend himself and he does. And this is how he finishes. Remembering this is before the Sanhedrin who had killed Jesus. And this is how Peter finishes his defense in Acts 4 verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What a different Peter. Wow, it's almost like he's looking the chief priest in the eye and saying, do your worst. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Yes, indeed, we worship a king who is righteous and a king who offers salvation. But also we worship a king who is gentle. And we see this time and time again in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus' invitation to you and I is, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And in the next chapter, chapter Matthew twelve twenty, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. We worship a gentle king. And finally, in Zechariah 9.9, we learn that not only is Jesus righteous, offering salvation and gentle, but he is humble because he rides a donkey. Normally, a king would enter a city triumphantly on a great war horse or spectacular chariot. Behind him would be marching soldiers behind him and there would be banners and there would be trumpets But no, this high king of heaven comes humbly on a donkey because he is the true and the better king. Righteous, having salvation, gentle and humble. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And there's more. For this high king of heaven commandeers. He takes stuff. Why? Because he's king. He doesn't just take our time and our things, our bank balance, our mortgages, our cars, our reputation. He takes our very lives. But there's a difference between this king, the true and the better king, and secular, worldly kings. What's that difference? Well, we remember the words he said to his disciples. The Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. See, this is the difference between Jesus and all other kings, the difference between Jesus and Caesar. Caesar and the king say, I need your stuff and you can't have it back. I'm the king and I take things when I want to. But Jesus says, give me your life and I will take it, but I will give it back. And that's the difference between the true and the better king who commandeers our very lives. He takes our rotten old life and gives it back transformed, new, fresh. And I want to finish with a parable. It's a parable that will help us understand that when Christ commandeers our life, he gives it back totally transformed. It was battered and old and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while. Why waste time with this old violin? But he held it up, with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? Do I hear one dollar? One dollar? Two dollars? 
Do I hear $3? $3. Going once, going twice. But no, from the back of the room there's a movement. And a grey-bearded man came forward and he picked up the bow. He wiped the dust from the old violin and he tightened the strings and he played. And he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. And when the music ceased, there wasn't a whisper. The auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I bid this violin as he held it aloft with its bow? Do I hear 1,000? 2,000? Do I hear 3,000? 3,000 once, twice, going, going, gone. $3,000. And the audience cheered, but some of them cried, We just don't understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. You see, we are that violin. And just as we give our lives to the king who rides humbly on a donkey, he takes what is battered and bruised and busted and out of tune and he takes it, he takes our lives and he makes them beautiful. So on this Palm Sunday, as we joyfully cry, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, we can encounter the high king of heaven humbly riding on a donkey. And when we give him our lives and our all, we are never the same again. Let's pray.